how to be good and angry, and I will review briefly what we covered last week on that in just a bit. But everybody should have some notes, a set of notes for today's session, session two. And as you're getting settled in and getting your notes opened to the first page, page nine, for session two, let me remind you of some things that are coming up. Every Wednesday at seven o'clock, we have our midweek program that is classes for all ages, so nursery toddler, children, teens, and, uh, and adults. This semester for the adults, we have a men's class and a women's class going on, both. So something for everybody, seven o'clock every Wednesday. And then in a few weeks, on the 4th of March, that's a Saturday at 10 a.m., that's our next brunch at our house. We call it the Newcomer's Brunch. Those of you that have never been to a brunch at our house, consider yourself then a newcomer, and we would love to have you. And we have those because it gives us an opportunity, my wife and I, a chance to meet you in ways that we really can't in a setting like this. So we would love to have you. It's on uh, Saturday the 4th, 10 a.m., but we need to know how many people are coming so we know how much uh, food to prepare. You can let the folks at the information desk that's out in the lobby Just give them your name, and they will put you on the list, and they will also give you an invitation that has our address, phone number, and a reminder of the date and time for that. So that's the fourth. If you could let them know today, that would be great. Certainly uh, in the next week, by next week, uh, that would help us. And then finally, we have our next family event coming up on the 18th, Saturday the 18th of March. And that's a bowling event from 1 in the afternoon to 3. It's at Woodhaven Lanes. And there's a cost of $7 for the two games and shoe rental for that. If you bring your whole family, the maximum is $28. So if you have more than four, you still don't pay for more than four. You just pay the 28 And you can pay for that uh, out the back door here and across the hallway in our resource center. All right, we are in our series, How to Be Good and Angry. And today is week two of eight in that series. For those of you who were not able to be with us last week, the notes from that session are in that same resource center that I just mentioned, out the back door and across the hallway. And we'll have extra sets of the notes each week there. So in case you miss one of the sessions, you can go in there and you can uh, get that previous week's uh, session. You notice at the bottom of the cover page for today, it says session two. So each week we'll have a cover page that says the session number on it so you don't get them mixed up since the cover page looks the same uh, every week. And the reason today then starts page nine is because we had eight pages last week as part of session one. And in session one last week, we looked at, though we, we all experience and express anger in different ways, anger is a serious issue for all of us. So we all experience it and we all express it in different ways. And how we express it and how we experience it depends on a number of factors that fall into those major categories of nature and nurture. That is nature, what are you like just naturally? We're different. And so the way we're going to experience and we're going to express anger is going to differ because of that. It's also going to differ because of the way we were nurtured, the way we were brought up, things we saw modeled in front of us as to how to handle things that don't occur to our liking. So we all experience and express anger in different ways. But make no mistake, anger is a serious issue for each one of us. And the fact that some of us are more subdued in the way we express our anger does not mean it's less of a problem for us. If you're the slow burn type of person, as opposed to the volcanic person 
that just erupts. Nevertheless, that's still the same DNA. That's anger at work in you, in me. And so it's a serious problem for all of us. Now, today we're going to look at what is anger. And that's why at the top of page 8, you see this is section 2. And for the next few weeks, it's going to be section 2, what is anger. And today, we're going to see that anger really can be summarized this way. I'm against that. I'm against something. Or someone. And we're going to explore what that looks like together. So, page 9. What is anger? That simple question quickly becomes complex. As we saw last week, the anger we experience usually appears mixed up. In the most typical case, you see something wrong or bad happening. When a supposed friend, for example, betrays you, that's wrong, not right. When construction shuts down the highway and you miss an important appointment, that's bad, not good. You get angry... When you experience what happened as a moral offense or as an unpleasant frustration. Now, I would just encourage you, if you have a pen uh, handy, to underline or circle the word experience in that line. You get angry when you experience what happened. You see, because there's what happened, there's what occurs outside of you and outside of me. But then there's the way that I process that, the way you process that. Or, to put it in the words of that line, the way you experience that. That's going to be a key factor in how you and what you get angry at. You get angry when you experience what happened as a moral offense or as an unpleasant frustration. In theory, your anger could be clean and constructive, yet most often our anger comes out grubby and destructive. In things like complaining, throwing tantrums, displaying coldness, trying to get even, and feeling self-pity. These are typical ways that all of us do what the Bible warns about. Returning evil for evil. You notice that phrase is in quotes. And it's in quotes because it is a quotation from Romans chapter 12 that we have cited there. These are typical ways that all of us return evil for evil. A natural response for sure, but it's one that God identifies as the exact wrong response. Now, the other word that I want you to circle or underline then in that last line of that paragraph is response. It's a natural response for sure, but God identifies returning evil for evil as the exact wrong response. So these two elements that I had you underline and circle, how we experience and how we respond determine whether we're angry at the right things and whether we're angry at them in the right way. How I experience them and how I respond to them are what determines whether I'm angry at the right things and whether I express that anger, if it is at the right things, if it is righteous anger, if it is good anger. And we've seen that there is such a thing. But even if it is the right kind of anger, that is, it's expressed, it's, it's, it's aimed at the right things, I should be angry at this, even so I've got to express that anger in the right way. And so both of those, the experience of it and the response of it, those two elements will determine whether we're angry at the right things and in the right way. So think of it this way. People can be in the same situation and experience that situation quite differently. True? Traffic jam. 
I-75 South is closed. Now, I don't work in Detroit anymore. If I did, this would be a big challenge. If I worked north of Detroit, like I did for many years, this would be a big challenge. My daughter Annie is going to Wayne State. She's already experienced this challenge. Trying to find alternate routes home. Well, everybody else is trying to find that same alternate route home. So, traffic jams. Well, how do you experience a traffic jam? And different people experience them different ways. You know, if you're on your way to work, you know, you might be next to somebody and there's a gal putting on her lipstick. She's figuring, hey, cool, I got more time to get ready. It's good for her. How's she experiencing it? It's not the way I'm experiencing it. Or the kids. If the kids were on their way to school and they get in a traffic jam. Hallelujah. We're going to be late for school. It would be great if we were really late for school. Those kids and that woman are experiencing it, experiencing it quite differently than the salesman who's sitting there thinking about the money he's going to lose because he's not going to be able to make this appointment. So we all experience the same kinds of things. And it shows that we're bringing that nature and nurture. All of that baggage comes into the things that we are surrounded with and that we react to, that we respond to. And those two elements together are key. How we experience and how we respond determines whether we're angry at the right things and in the right way. Second paragraph on page 9. The question is also complex because each of us brings a certain set of associations with us into each angry moment. Particular memories, good and bad experiences, people who've hurt us or influenced us, the turmoil of emotions. These all create a context that may be far more persuasive than any textbook definition of what anger is. Your instinctive personalized definition may or not be helpful in getting to the bottom of all that anger that anger is. Now, in a moment, we're going to consider what it is that we might associate with anger. That is what we might think of when we hear the word, when they hear the word anger. And throughout this lesson, we're going to be trying to give a definition of what anger is and and how it has common elements that are featured no matter how we express it. There's some commonalities to the anger that we all struggle with, no matter how we express it, whether we're that slow burn type or the volcanic type or something in between. And I want to ask you, as we're on page nine here, we've got ten pages. I want you to stay with it. Because in this lesson, we're laying groundwork for what anger is. Hopefully, you'll get some insights last week and this week that will already be helpful to you. But this is laying groundwork for us to become more practical as we move forward. So please stay with it. So with that, what do you associate with the word anger? Third paragraph says, consider this analogy. Say the word father. And one woman thinks of a man who's gentle, strong, generous, protective, and reliable. She feels trust and pleasure at the thought. Another woman thinks of a man who was all of those things, but he died last year. Her trust and pleasure are infused with grief. A third woman thinks of a man who's still a vicious drunk, a betrayer, abuser, and a hypocrite. She feels immediate fear, pain, and anger when she hears the word father. A fourth woman thinks of a similarly harmful man who died 20 years ago. Dark feelings are still present 
but they're muted and colored with a sense of regret, of emptiness, even of thankfulness that her life was not destroyed as it could have been. So that same word yields a completely different starting point for the train of thoughts and feelings. If you're trying to understand what a father is or should be, it's important to get your starting point out on the table. Only then can you start to think more widely and deeply, and it's no different with anger. What image or experience comes to mind when you hear the words, he's angry or she's angry or I'm angry? What do you picture taking place? Do you think of a hostile exchange between two people? A particular person's facial expression, hostile words and violence? An overwhelming burning inside? The way that you react, the way that you react fearfully or to an angry person, is that what comes to mind? An angry crowd of protesters? What is your association? Well, here are six common wavelengths on this spectrum of bad anger. Maybe one of these will capture your attention. There's irritability. That's anger on a hair trigger. So do you live or work alongside someone who's easily set off? Are you that person? Cranky, grouchy, testy? So you're carrying around stuff with you. And it doesn't take much to ignite that. That's what we're saying here. That's one type of what you think about when you think of anger, irritability, on a hair trigger. Arguing is the disagreeable he said, she said of interpersonal friction. Anger is the emotion that inhabits interpersonal conflict and it takes two for a fight. Is quarreling the first thing that you associate with anger? Bitterness expresses how anger can last a long, long time. People recycle in their minds and in their words old hurts and they nurse grievances and grudges and never get over it. Violence expresses the sheer destructiveness of anger. Anger attacks and hurts and destroys or even kills, finding pleasure in afflicting pain. There's passive anger that hides behind surface appearances and even beneath conscious awareness. As long as it remains undetectable by the person who's angry, it can't be addressed. But it does have side effects. Depression, lethargy, pessimism can all stem from a passive anger toward others. Have you ever thought about that? Depression, lethargy, pessimism, those can all stem from a kind of passive anger that a person has never, has never dealt with. Think of it this way. Think of jealousy or envy. Think about someone who has grown up uh, jealous, envious. Maybe from the time of a child, a teenager. You know, I'm remembering uh, an animated film that we watched with the girls a long time ago called Despicable Me. Am I thinking of the right one? And wasn't this somebody who was angry because of the way life had gone for them and then how they turned out, how despicable they turned out because of that, because they were nursing these grievances for all of this, all of this time. Jealousy or envy, you look at what other people have or what other people look like or how other people are experiencing life and that should all be happening to you. You're jealous, you're envious, you think. That should all be happening to me. Now, notice how subtle it is because it can all hide behind something that sounds very humble. 
you know, I really have a low self-image of myself. I really don't like myself. But in fact, most of us like ourselves too much. In fact, we like ourselves so much that we're envious of what other people have because we should have it. That's how much we like ourselves. The truth is, really, the truth is, if we really hated ourselves, we would be glad that we were in the situation we're in. None of us are. And so it's really at root, it's a, it's a jealousy, it's an, an envy. And how do I respond to that? That's how I'm experiencing. Remember, experience and response. How do I respond to that? Well, I can talk others down. I can become a very negative now person. I can be a real downer to be around because I'm going to talk other people down to bring them to where I want them to be. Bring me up to where I think I should be. Or you might disengage. You're not talking other people down. You just disengage. I'm not going to hang around people. I don't like being around people. If you disengage and you nurse your grievances long enough, it can result in depression, lethargy, and pessimism. But that's because you're nursing something, thinking about something that has a very deep root to it. So, top of page 10, that's passive anger. It hides behind surface appearances and beneath conscious awareness. And then sixthly, self-righteous anger enjoys the empowering sense of grievance, of getting in touch with honest emotion and expressing it freely. It feels good to let it out. It often gets results. So things or persons are not as I expect them to be, and so I let it out in my self-righteous anger. Each of these six problems matters. Anger flares too quickly, alienates too many relationships, it burns too long, it causes too much pain, it hides too well, it feels too good. But these various anger problems aren't the whole story. And notice the word problems is emphasized there. These are really the symptoms, is what we're saying. They're not the whole story. What connects them? What do they have in common? They can't be the essence of anger. These are some distorted versions, misdirected expressions of something deeper that's going on. They pervert something that's intrinsic to who we are that can, thankfully, be remade right. So we've got to bring the deeper definition to light. Only then can we cultivate a new association to anger operating as it should. Good and angry is the opposite of all forms of bad and angry, and it acts constructively in the presence of wrong. Then we can also add that other problem that we mentioned last week, absent anger that fails to get aroused, fails to get angry when real wrongs are occurring because it's easier to remain indifferent and detached. Now, if you were here last week, you remember that. You know, there's mostly the things we commit in anger. We commit anger because... We express it in these various ways, at the wrong things and in the wrong way, but that's anger of commission. But then there's anger of omission. There's stuff that I ought to be angry at, that I just say it's not worth it, and I just let it go. That's what we mean here by this absent anger. So we need a definition that will encompass all of that, not just the different problems that are different strokes for different folks, the different experiences that people have, Because those are different. What do they all have in common? The problems, I say in the next uh, paragraph, that arise are not the essential DNA of anger. They're the mutations and the corruptions. It's important we get the DNA right. 
then we can make sense of these mutant forms of anger that make up 99% of the anger that's expressed in our interpersonal experience. So what is anger? What common thread runs through every form of anger, whether it's good or bad? At its core, anger is very simple. It expresses in the title of this lesson, I'm against that. It's an active stance that you take to oppose something that you assess as two things, both important and wrong. So you've looked at a situation or a person and what they're doing, and you've assessed it. And you may not have consciously thought about it very much, but in a flash, you've assessed it. And you've said, this is important to me, and this is wrong. And then you react. You notice something, you size it up, and you say, that matters, and it's not right. You encounter something in your world that crosses the line for you. Anger expresses the energy of your reaction to something you find offensive and you wish to eliminate. So notice those those two things, those two words in the second line of that paragraph. It says you oppose something that you assess as both these two things, important and wrong. Now, with that, we can begin to get glimpses of the cure to anger. By asking ourselves, one of the things that we can do to help ourselves is ask, how important is it? How important is the thing that I'm getting angry at? So last week I mentioned to you guys that, you know, if I'm going to teach, you know, on anger, I got to confess. I say we all struggle with anger. That would include me. You know, so incompetent customer service people. I mentioned them last week. Okay. The waitress who fancies herself as being able to remember everything so she doesn't write anything down. I want to pull out my pen and say, here, you want to borrow this? So you can get it right. You know, so, but, but I've got to ask myself, how important is it? This is apparently important to me because I get upset about it. Should it be that important? That's what I've got to ask. Many of you know, if you were here first hour, I mentioned that my wife and I took a trip down to Kentucky this week because an aunt of mine, who was the last sibling in my mom's family, she had five siblings and she was the last, so we wanted to make it down to honor her and to maybe for the last time possibly see cousins of ours. And so on short notice, we went down to Kentucky for these three days, Wednesday through Friday. And for all the years that we've been married, 32, uh, just as of a couple of weeks ago, thank you. Actually, you should thank Kim. She's the one who's endured. 32 years and 32 years and all the trips that we've made, Kim has always packed for us. And she makes out an itinerary. Hey, are you guys able to turn that off? Just to, I don't think we need the heat. I don't think we need to just turn all of them off. Thank you very much. And... She's always packed for us. She's always put together our triptych, our itinerary. She's always done a great job with that. And so I don't pack any of the stuff. She packs it all. And I, in all of those years, I don't remember her forgetting anything. But she's always worried about it. She's always saying, you know, I hope I didn't forget anything. And I always say the same thing. I say, look, if you forget something, we can buy it. So don't worry. Don't worry about it. If you forget it, we'll buy it. Okay? So I try to set her mind at ease. But she's always been perfect with it until this trip. (laughs) And there we are on Wednesday night, having driven to Lexington 
We're in our hotel. We've got a couple more hours the next morning to get to the funeral home. And Kim's pulling all the stuff out. And then at 9.40, and you'll know why I know the time here in a minute. At 9.40, she says, uh, hey, I uh, forgot something. Your pants. <laughs> you know? Well, that's bad. So, a lot of things are going through my head at this point. I'm thinking, you know, starting to get, you know, okay, it's 940. You're letting me know this. We got the funeral tomorrow. We got a pretty tight time frame. You know, what are we going to do? Uh, what are we going to do? But the other thought that goes through my head is, well, maybe you could pack for yourself. You know, if you want to get mad at somebody else, then pack for yourself. But then she says, you know, I looked up Kohl's. So she had already discovered there were no pants. She looked up that there's a Kohl's within like four minutes of us. And I say, how late's it open? She says, till 10. It's 9.40. Kohl's is open till 10. She's already looked up directions. Now, she says we can go in the morning. But I don't want to go in the morning. It's going to make things really tight. I'm going to try to go to Kohl's. So she gives me her phone with her instructions on it. Her GPS is supposed to talk to me in a way that will get me to Kohl's. So I get out in our rented vehicle, which, by the way, I'm angry about that, too. <laughs> our rented vehicle was a VW Bug. <laughs> Lemon yellow VW Bug. <laughs> We go to the funeral. I'm in the procession with my. That's that cousin who never comes around. So I get in the yellow bug. And the stupid thing doesn't work. The stupid. Now, you've had that, right? The GPS is giving you a turn right. Go, Go northwest on. What is northwest? How would I have any idea what northwest is? Go northwest on, and then you turn, and you're just making a guess, and you make the guess, and then it says, proceed to the route. That means I'm recalibrating, which means basically I'm useless at this point. So I just am driving around, and I'm driving around furiously, and we forgot my glasses. I only wear glasses at night when I'm driving, and it's raining. So I'm just trying to find the full thing, and I'm turning into play, and I'm turning here, and I'm turning there. And at four minutes before 10, 9.56, I pull into a strip mall that's got Kohl's there. At 9.56, I go running into Kohl's. All the people there are angry at me. <laughs> there's a security guard. There's a, And I've got to find a pair of black pants. And I say to the security guard, I need black pants. And he says, uh, you know, if you go to, I go, if you walk there, I'll follow you. <laughs> Little anger coming out. He does. He walks, he takes me there. Racks of black pants. I've now got two minutes to close time. So I do what I always do when I go shopping. I buy a half dozen pair of pants. <laughs> we can always take them back. I don't have time to try them on. And I'm just grabbing black pants off of the rack. And I put them in and I pay 200 and some dollars for my <laughs> pants. Two of these pair were like only 12 bucks, turns out. Turns out that's not the pair that fit, but nonetheless. 
I get home, you know, when I came back, the GPS was not working, so it took me 20 minutes to get back to the, the hotel and all that, and I had to assess as I'm driving. And the only reason, frankly, that I was assessing is because I'm teaching this series. I'm thinking to myself, you're angry. Do you have a right to be angry? You're teaching a series on anger. And so I stepped back, calmed down, and it all worked out. One of the pair of pants fit. As a matter of fact, I'm wearing that pair of pants as I, as I speak. So. so back to then, you know, you've got two things going on. You've got how important is it? How important was all of that in the grand scheme? And then is it morally wrong? So you've got those two things. It's both important and you think it's wrong. Well, what happened with me wasn't morally wrong on anybody's part. Things happen. Nobody sinned against me in that. People make mistakes, and so you roll with it. But we don't often roll with it the way we should. So next paragraph then, page 10. The DNA is not a heightened pitch of emotion. The DNA DNA of anger is not a heightened pitch of emotion. It's not the surge of adrenaline. It's not any particular way of expressing anger. It's not which events or people happen to tick you off. It's not whether you get into arguments. The underlying essence is the negative evaluation. And here it is, and this is why we have it emphasized in bold. Active displeasure towards something that's important enough to care about. That's what anger is. It's active Displeasure, that displeasure is going to be expressed in some way toward something that's important, at least to you. Now, you're going to have to evaluate whether it really should be, but when you get angry, it's important enough for you to care about. Or to put it another way, in the title of this lesson, I'm against that, and I act on it. But should I be against that? Should that thing be important? Is it a moral wrong that's been committed? We will see that as we go in future lessons. Human beings come wired with a capacity to react with displeasure toward real wrongs and to act forcefully to make those wrongs right. In other words, we're moral beings. We're made in the image of God. And so we're wired to operate in anger's logic, which is this. That matters and it's wrong. It displeases me, and I'm against it. I should change it. I should remove it. I should destroy it. The core is that something important is not the way it's meant to be, and we are moved to take action. Now, that paragraph says we're wired to do this. We're made in the image of God. If you were here last week, you remember that I pointed out that you can summarize the Bible as being about three things. It's about orientation. That's who we are, and what God expects of us. How we're wired, how we're made, orientation. But because of sin, there's disorientation. What we were wired to do is is now haywired. It's now cross-wired. Things are distorted. The things and capacities that God gave us for good are now used toward other ends. So this good capacity to see something that's wrong and act upon it that God gave us, made in his image, that he himself has, we distort. It's disoriented. So there's orientation and disorientation. And thankfully, God is engaged in reorientation, reorienting us 
So orientation is who we are and what God expects of us. A disorientation is what our problem is. And reorientation is God's work at making it right. That's why we have a class like this, to try to make it right. But we're wired with this capacity. Anger is about displeasure. When you're pleased with something, it's impossible to feel angry. You approve, so no offense is taken. Or if something doesn't much matter, or you don't even notice it, again, no anger, no offense taken. But in each variant of anger, we assess something that happens. We care and we take the stance of both critic, judge, activist, enemy, and plaintiff. I disapprove. That's wrong. I feel offended. I want either to make it right or to get rid of it. And this evaluative core underlies our more narrow associations to anger. So read that sentence carefully now. This evaluative, that is, this evaluation process that we go through, when we look at something and assess it, we evaluate it, that underlies, you see the word underlies is in italics, because that's what's causing the associations that we have. Remember earlier we asked, what do you associate with anger? And it might be a violent outburst or it might be the way somebody talks or facial expressions and all of that. But those aren't anger. Those are the expressions of anger. What underlies that is this evaluation, this, this judgment that we're making. So every incident has three things in common. I identify some perceived wrong. See, I evaluate, I judge it. I identify and notice the words perceived wrong. It may not be wrong, but I'm experiencing it that way. I'm perceiving it that way. I take a stance of disapproval and I feel displeasure. And then in some way I move to action to say or to do something about it. All of our more specific associations, specific associations, what each of us calls to mind as anger are variations on this same theme. So consider, skip that paragraph, go to consider the wide range of possible emotions. On the one end of the spectrum are angers that express a mere flash of irritation or mild complaint. On the other end, anger can be keyed to a ranting rage or an all-consuming quest for revenge. But whether mild or fierce, the common denominator operates inside. Next paragraph. Similarly, the actions can vary greatly. Depending on the particulars, a person might actually commit murder in the first degree or in the third degree, a crime of passion. In other cases, file a lawsuit, start a protest movement, or go to the defense of a victim. You can always get into an argument, or you can try to escape, move to a tropical island, avoid that person, pretend it doesn't bother you, drink a few beers. Or you might do nothing. Your actual response might be fair or unfair, merciless or merciful, constructive or destructive. But the common thread within every action is the same. That's wrong. What you do or don't do about it is variable. The objects that trigger displeasure also vary. Though the common core, I'm against that, operates in every case. We can take a stand against just about anything. You can get mad at people, animals, ideas, the weather, machines, at God. Right? The objects can change. So that's why somebody asked me as we were walking out last week, well, okay, is it still okay to kick the cat? Now, I'm not a cat lover, so yes, go ahead and kick the, <laughs> kick the cat. I give you a dispensation to kick the cat, okay? But really, we, we can get expressed, the objects can vary 
for all of us because that's not the core. And then the next one, the duration can vary. Your negativism might be a passing fancy, a frustration in traffic that you've forgotten in three seconds, or it can define the moral cause and settle into the hostility that will dominate and define the rest of your life. Whether short or long, it's still fire registering this, I'm displeased. And that all comes from this underlying thing of evaluating, making value judgments. All of this is to say that anger always makes a value judgment. Anger is always a moral matter. It's rightly been called the moral emotion because it makes a statement about what matters. Human beings make moral judgments, therefore human beings do anger, period. Like God, you come wired to size things up, to feel displeasure at wrong, to act in order to do something about it. And would you want to live in a world with no value judgments? I hope not. When the standard of judgment is accurate and the way of reacting is constructive... Then clear-minded, hearty disapproval is one of the best things going. If you were indifferent or approving toward child abusers, terrorists, cheats, you'd be morally defective. Moral sanity, notice this, must disapprove of wrong. And that disapproval is the essence of anger. Every time you get angry, you make your values and point of view explicit. But anger isn't the only reaction that proclaims what you value. In fact, every time you open your mouth or don't open it, you're broadcasting your values. This is what is meant, when, for example, when Jesus said that every careless word will be evaluated and that the mouth speaks from what fills the heart. Every word we say, including small talk, tells something important about you. What you choose to talk about or never think about saying broadcasts what matters to you. Your emotional reactions and your choices always proclaim your values. And if you stir into that a bit of emotion because you care, because something that matters is going wrong, you can get the reaction we call anger. Every time you get angry or don't get angry, you broadcast what matters to you. And so when we use in this series now the word anger, we're not just talking about then the expressions of anger. We're talking about this larger, broader definition that has the underlying evaluations and value judgments that we're making so that we then can start to hone in on whether or not I should be angry at that. And how should I react to this perceived wrong? Is it a real wrong or just a perceived wrong? So next paragraph, what what is anger? It's the way we react when something we think important is not the way it's supposed to be. So here are some examples from the Bible that illustrate how anger is aroused. King Xerxes wants to show off his trophy wife. The Bible says in Esther chapter 1, when King Xerxes was in high spirits with wine, he commanded his servants to bring before him Queen Vashti, wearing her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles, for she was lovely to look at. But when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. Then the king became furious and burned with anger. He called his advisors together and they said, If it pleases the king, let him issue a royal decree and let it be written in the laws of Persia and Media, which which cannot be repealed, that Vashti is never again to enter the presence of King Xerxes. Also, let the king give her royal position to someone else who is better than she. So what does the king perceive as wrong? He perceives as wrong anybody that would defy anything he says. I'm the king, right? How does he, what does he feel? Anger. What does he do? He's going to banish her from, from her position. All right, here's another example from the Bible. A young man sees what he perceives as the self-righteousness of Job and the 
accusatory attitudes of his three friends. Elihu became very angry with Job for justifying himself rather than God. He was also angry with the three friends because they had found no way to refute Job and yet had condemned him. I too will have my say. I too will tell you what I know for I'm full of words. So what does he perceive as as wrong? He perceives the stance of, of Job and what how Job is portraying himself as wrong. He perceives the judgments that the friends have made as wrong without making their case. What's he feel? Anger. What's he going to do? He's going to give them a piece of his mind. Yeah, I'm full of words. I'm self-righteously angry, and I'm going to tell you about it. Here's another example. A king sees another man's success and the ways that other praise him. This is King Saul and David. The Bible says, as the women danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands, David his ten thousands. Saul was very angry. This refrain displeased him greatly. They credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get now but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. What does he perceive as wrong? He's jealous of David. He perceives as wrong the praise that David is getting that he should, he should get. How does he feel? He's angry. What does he do? He's now going to surveil David. Uh, and pursue him eventually. Shortly after being rescued out of slavery, the Israelites throw a party to celebrate a bull calf they had cast from molten gold. Moses was delayed at Mount Sinai, and so the people said to Aaron, and then that first paragraph is, Aaron, take this, our, our gold that we have brought out of Egypt, and melt it down and make this golden calf for us, which he went ahead and did. And if you look at the next paragraph, then the Lord said to Moses, go down because your people whom you brought out of Egypt have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone, so this is God now, that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. What does the Lord perceive as wrong? Idolatry. Anything that is more valuable than him. Anything that replaces him. He rightly sees that as wrong. What does he feel? He feels the same thing everybody else had felt, but this is righteous anger. He feels anger. What does he propose to do to fix it? What does fixing it mean? It may mean cutting some people back. It may mean destroying some people. Because ultimately, I'm going to make you into a great nation, and you will not be a great nation with this kind of thing happening. And then there's Jesus in a synagogue encounter. Both Jesus and his enemies feel intense displeasure toward each other. The Bible says Jesus went into a synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would do work on the Sabbath, even including healing on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. And look, then look at this. He, Jesus, looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed At their stubborn hearts, he said to the man, stretch out your hand, and he healed them. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. What does Jesus perceive as wrong? Top of page 14, the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. He rightly perceives that, and he's rightly feeling anger at it. And what does he do? He defies that hypocrisy, and he does good in the face of this hypocrisy. What do the Pharisees perceive as wrong? 
Jesus coming and claiming to be king. Jesus coming and claiming to be Messiah. And and so much so that they're willing to violate their man-made additions to the law. What do they feel? Anger. What do they do? They plot. So we're going to next look at all that comes into play when a person is angry. And we'll build toward explaining why anger seems essentially destructive in some cases, while in other cases, constructive. Now notice this line, the motives at work are the deciding factor. Now this next section, for the next few pages, is about the fact that all of you, every part of you, does anger. Your body, your words, your thoughts, your emotions... Every piece of you, every part of you is involved when we are angry. We're going to see that. It would have been cool if we could have seen it today. But we're done. I heard your watches going off. I don't know, I don't know if there's volume on those, but if there is, some of you turn it up so that I can hear it at noon, the appointed hour. And when those things go off, that means shut up. Okay, I understand that. Now, here's what that does. It makes me really angry, okay? (laughs) So before I get really ticked, we're going to stop. We're going to pray, ask the Lord to go with us, and here's what I'm asking you to do. We will have some additional notes for you next week, but we'll need to look at these notes too. So will you bring these notes back? Try to remember to bring these notes back with you next week, okay? All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for this day, this Lord's day, the opportunity to worship you, to praise you in song, to give back to you, to learn of you from your word. We thank you for what we heard in the first hour about our lives here being temporary and how real life is going to continue on and on a wholly other plane that we can't imagine with you. If we belong to you, we always will belong to you. And we will ultimately never die. We will only transfer our location. And so, Lord, thank you for that truth, for that for that encouraging truth. I pray that it will cause me and us then to reorder our priorities in the short time that we have here. And, Lord, we thank you for this time to think about this issue of anger. We thank you for your word that tells us what we were made to be, tells us how what we were made to be has gone wrong, and gives us many illustrations of that so that we can relate that to our lives. Help us then, Lord, to contemplate this week the things that we perceive as as wrong and whether or not they really are wrong and whether or not we are expressing, even if they are, our anger at those in the right way. Help us to put that into practice this week. Help us to learn more in the weeks to come. We ask you, Lord, to grant us safety and a gathering again next Lord's Day. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.